Welcome back to the Green Element podcast, where we feature business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable. I'm your host, Will Richardson, and I can't wait to meet our guest today and help you on your journey of sustainability. Welcome to the Green Element podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Smriti and Dr. Sri. It's great to chat to you and find out more about your organisation. Could you tell us a bit about who you are and um, what the organisation is about, please? Oh, thanks. Uh, uh, We are a manufacturer. Uh, We are based in uh, London, but our manufacturing base is in South India. Uh, We make eco-packaging, and these are predominantly made from sustainable products, uh, which are cotton, canvas, hessian. And the main objective is that we could change the way people use packaging. And one of the things that we introduced about 12 years ago was the humble shopping bag. And uh, as you might remember, um, the single-use plastic bag was just very common, you know, whether it was the Tesco's of the world or the smaller retailers, they were giving away plastic bags and it was, it was being given away free of cost and it was running in billions and billions and billions. These plastic bags had a tremendous environmental impact and we now know what it has contributed to in terms of what's happened in the oceans, the rivers and other places where it's deeply impacted marine life. So we were set, set about reducing plastic bags and then fortunately we had uh, a bunch of very um, uh, enlightened people at that time who set up the Cotold Pact, which uh, got together and said we would reduce voluntarily. And this was a pact which was between all the big superstar, the, the, the stores like Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda's, Marks and Spencer, the cooperative. And they agreed with the government that they would voluntarily reduce plastic bags. And at that time, we were part of the mission to replace the single-use plastic bags with sustainable bags. And these were made in our factory in South India, made from either cotton or, in, in the case of some products, uh, Hessian, the, the, the jute bag which we produced for Tesco, the, the ladybird bag, bag uh, which had a ladybird uh, uh, print was made in our factory. So that was the start of our business. But we didn't really just stop at just making bags and our business grew substantially in getting to understand manufacturers and trying to replace packaging. You know, if you can replace plastic with an eco packaging, that is wonderful because uh, it is a repetitive packaging. You know, many of the packaging that we get is repetitive. You get a product, it repeats. You know, you get a box of uh, toothpaste, it's, it's repetitive. And if you can reduce the carbon footprint by replacing some element of it, you can't re- replace everything, but you can replace some part of it with uh, eco-packaging. And that's been our mission. Uh, and when Smithy joined the business, um, she was quite uh, quite keen on making it fun, you know, packaging, if it can be design oriented, then it becomes fun. And it is nice to have nice designs designed properly 
that would be part of the whole product, whether it's the bags or whether it's the packaging. So that's how our business uh, developed. Okay. So, so the, sorry, sorry, go ahead. So the company's called Supreme Creations and the label um, that's present on our products is called Bags of Ethics. And it's a really humble little label um, with a smiley face on it. Um, and the reason why we wanted to put a label on our products was to give consumers comfort and interest to know the provenance of the product um, and to have a deep emotional connection to the product and to have comfort that it has been produced in an ethically audited factory, strict, uh, strictly adhering to um, uh, rules around what materials that we're using, how we treat our people and how we're also considering um, the impact on the planet. And this label started life uh, inside the product, um, but over the, the, the past few years has become a really valuable component for our clients and our collaboration. So whether we're, we're working with the British Fashion Council or um, some fashion retailers or the likes of Nike and Google, many of these brands now want to affiliate with us as a business, not just as a manufacturer of a high quality product or a manufacturer who can hit a certain price target, or a manufacturer who can hit certain sustainability credentials, but a manufacturer that can directly connect with the consumer um, and has uh, credible credentials that a consumer can relate to. Um, and so that's been a real journey for us as a business. Um, and through design and through fashion, we've been able to uh, really support change in consumer behavior um, and their perception of you know, this is not just a hippie product that we're trying to, to flog. You know, it's actually a collectible piece, whether it's a tote bag or whether it's a piece of reusable packaging or whether now in, in, recent, in recent months we've been producing reusable face masks because at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, we knew that the single-use plastic masks and PPE that maybe the public would have to use could become the next plastic disaster so what's really happened now is that if you if you go back as i was explaining uh, uh, perhaps uh, a few minutes ago at that time when the cortol pact happened uh, you know there was a real concern that we should reduce plastic bags uh, single use plastic uh, and so on and so forth so much work was done and i have to give credit to all the big uh, retailers and the general public and government, they all jointly brought in a big campaign to reduce plastic and people were getting more and more aware that single-use plastic is bad. And people started using their, you know, their jute bags or their cotton bags or reusable bags. And they were concerned about reducing plastic in packaging. Now, what has happened now, if you see now, when you look at the recent COVID experience that we have, we all are now wearing face masks. But it's so tragic to see today that these single-use face masks are made from plastic. And we're talking of, you know, a single-use face mask can only be used for about four to five hours. You then have to chuck it. So you can quite imagine the volume of plastic that is being thrown away this plastic is actually worse in terms of what's happening because even a bag, the plastic bag, was being reused in some forms. They were 
taking taking it back home and reusing it in some form. But this single-use face mask is being chucked on the roads. It's being chucked anywhere they can find it. And it is then finding its way into the rivers, the oceans. And we're talking of not a few, you know, we're talking of billions, absolute billions. And unfortunately, while government is now talking about various things, this is an aspect I'm, I'm a little surprised as to why they don't make it mandatory for people to not, at least, you know, the ordinary public don't need to wear these single-use uh, plastic masks. You know, I can understand if it is the hospital where the the standards are different, but for uh, for the ordinary Joe blocks on the road, they they can very comfortably protect themselves with the cotton face cloths, which can be reused, you know, 50, 60 times. And that's much more environmentally friendly. Don't you think so? Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, I do. And it'd be interesting to, um, you have talked about the fact that you're ethically audited in your factory in um, India. Um, what kind of process do you have to go through for that? And um, how do, how do people um, feel that, that that's been verified or, you know? You see, when, when we are dealing with um, uh, a large store, for example, uh, whether it's Sainsbury's or Boots uh, uh, or Tesco, to be an approved supplier, you need to be audited on, there would be an ethical audit, there would be a technical audit, and there's a commercial audit. You, you really have to go through all these audits to be a supplier because a big store is very, uh, very organized in allowing only few because there will be thousands of suppliers who are chasing a business uh, for one of, from one of these big stores. Now, as part of the ethical audit, there is a set audit that is there. It, it can be audited by a third party but like SGS. Uh, or Intertech, or it could be the store themselves who may have an audit team. Mm. Now, the ethical audit comprises of various aspects of the, the audit questionnaire. They would want to know what kind of salary is being paid. Uh, are people paid uh, a decent uh, living? What are the working hours? Are we making people work excessive hours? Mm. Are we employing child labor? Do we have enough facilities for them to use good toilet facilities? And especially if you look at it today during COVID times, the number of factories in many parts of the world who've had big uh, occurrence of COVID, our, our, our factories who don't have good sanitary uh, facilities. I mean, we have excellent facilities. And what tends to happen is that the various ethical audit questionnaire is actually well designed. And uh, rather than we try and be, a, be scared of trying to uh, please the auditor, I've always felt very comfortable asking the auditors to teach us as to how to get better. Because basically, these ethical audits is actually to help us uh, improve not just our 
our ethical standards, but our, also our uh, efficiency, because it's good to have, you know, workers who are healthy, who are able to come to work, uh, uh, feel happy about it. So we've had to go through all these uh, ethical audits uh, from various uh, ma- uh, supply, various retailers over the past years. Uh, and the same thing is the case with technical audit, where we are technically audited as whether we have the required machinery, the required technical knowledge to deliver the products that they have. You know, the recent uh, face masks that we, we we were manufacturing, we are supplying to Boots. You know, I can assure you, Boots is one of the, the most difficult uh, retailer to get past because they are a medical retailer. So their, their, their whole culture about audit is yeah. very highly stringent because you know, you could you could supply a product where it could kill one of their customers. So they're always worried that any product that is sold by them is of very high standard. So the audits. I, I was going to ask um, the before the podcast started. You talked about um, having um, predominantly. Um, women working in the factory. I think you mentioned eighty percent, and and I'd love to explore and why that's a good thing because you were talking about that before. But um, is that asked about in these audits? And are you um, and or do you feel you're going above and beyond um, what's actually currently being asked for? I think what is what is happening with with uh, uh, having women is that. Uh, over the years, it as I said to you, my uh, first, uh, you know, the general manager was a friend of mine who had the similar kind of uh, ethos. Well, I can. I mean, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah, sure. because um, <laughs> I think a part, a part of the, uh, you know, I think as a, as a daughter of the founder of the business, it's been great and really. Int- I think from a from a purely anthropological point of view or sociological point of view, I think we're a really interesting business because we come, you know, our heritage is Indian. Mm. Um, I, I'm, you know, British um, and we're, we're both British, but, you know, our, our heritage and culture is Indian. And traditionally, Indian women aren't um, thought of as sort of, you know, there are very, very strong women in India, but generally haven't always been traditionally seen as the, the, the stronger sex. Um, but I think by being a daughter, I've actually, it's been, it's been a wonderful experience to have a father-daughter relationship within the business. And, and the philosophy of promoting women definitely doesn't come from me. But I think the fact that um, being the daughter of, of a founder and, and being an only child means that I'm not actually distinguished as a, as a son or a daughter. And I think by having a, a, a philosophy of girls can do it has percolated throughout the entire value chain of the business and and the entire culture of the business because whether you're a girl or a boy you can absolutely succeed and that's been something that I've personally felt as a daughter you know I've I've always had the best access to education the best access to anything regardless of my gender. No but more importantly is the fact that why did we have a woman? Uh, Yeah. the, 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 The issue is that the 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 advantage of empowering a very uneducated women is to give them 
a tool to be self-sufficient. Mm. You know, the problem with the bulk of the population in the world, you know, you and I are sitting in one of the richest parts of the world. Mm. We have access to good education, good facilities, and so on and so forth. But the bulk of the population, they're living in the most impoverished parts of the world. Now, if they continue to do so, right, this is just going to go on. But if you give them a tool, for example, if we decided, when we decided that we want to put more women, it was a method of giving each of those women who was employed by us a tool to be self-sufficient. And then it becomes generations of people who are completely taken off from that lowest threshold to a higher threshold. See, people who joined us, you know, 15 years ago, they are well off now. These were people who were just in their, you know, late teens who joined us who had no knowledge of anything. They were completely ignorant and they were not well educated. We taught them a tool, right? We gave them stitching lessons. We taught them how to print. Now with time, they have become self-sufficient. They mm. themselves have got children. They've given their children because they have the money. They've given their children good education. So this whole basis of trying to employ a high, high percentage of women has been a win-win situation because we've got their loyalty. They produce, as I said, today with modern equipment, it doesn't really matter whether you have a man or a woman. In the old days, you know, if you were working in the coal mines, rarely did you have women working in the coal mine because it was different, you know. It was extremely difficult. It was very hard. It was very difficult for women to work in those circumstances. Whereas in our manufacturing, in the modern manufacturing place, the tools are easy for women to use. Our printing machines are all automatic. So it doesn't need a lot of and you know high amount of uh, uh, lifting, lifting to, to do that. So I think whilst you look at it, um, we, we, I mean, to be very honest, we had an idea. And as the idea grew, the original idea was mine in terms of let's have women. It was just one of those things that we thought we should do. But as it grew, we found that it was an advantage for us a great advantage because we found that these women were very, very loyal to us. You know, they were, they are still working. Conscientious. You know, conscientious. Uh, they are, uh, they are certainly an asset for us. Uh, and it's been a good business uh, practice for us. When it comes to running an ethical and sustainable business, what would you say your biggest struggle so far has been? And could you tell us a bit about how you've overcome it? Well, I, I, my, my feeling on, on this is that when you try and do sustainable business, I, I was there, uh, you know, in 2008 and before that, when we were talking about sustainability and people, everyone was talking about sustainable business, you know, you know, this whole thing of being sustainable. And when the crash happened, all that was completely ignored, you know. Literally. Sustainable business today, sustainable business today, I, I feel people talk about it as a tick box. They feel they're going to tick that box to say we are sustainable. 
And it only seems to work when businesses are profitable, when economies are profitable. When businesses are having trouble, that bit of sustainability is chucked out of the window because that tick box is no longer relevant. Mm. And somehow I felt that it's, it's so um, sad that people are not. Don't you think so? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think some of our best clients have really embraced sustainability at their core. Um, and it's an absolutely critical principle of theirs to work with a supplier like ours. But when we're competing for contracts, uh, you know, the first thing to get through the door is, you know, what's your price? Yeah. Um, and there are, in an international marketplace, which is really competitive, um, you, you know, price is the number one factor which gets you through to the next round of applications and the next round of tenders. And I think um, sustainability is always asked about. It is currently being asked about, but it is definitely a separate uh, separate form, separate, uh, it's not intertwined into a, a relevancy of, of winning a contract. It's sort of a, a, a secondary or a tertiary requirement. But I think some of the most successful businesses do have a medium to long-term vision. You know, the likes of Unilever really embrace sustainability at their core um, and are working really hard to, you know, get rid of single-use plastic within their packaging and a variety of other initiatives from a social perspective. They're the ones who have the deep pockets, but they have embraced it. Um, and there are very small businesses that also embrace sustainability. There, are, there is a core in the middle where, uh, especially within the fast fashion industry, and there's, there's, you know, it's pretty evident, price really is absolutely critical. But what's, what's, what's probably a really interesting move is that the consumer is becoming more powerful. And the consumer is obviously king, the customer is always king, and they are now dictating what key principles are important for a uh, brand to associate themselves with, whether it's their Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, how, uh, how, uh, how, what's the position of... You of see, the... what, what also has happened is the fact that, you know, the social media is, yeah, has yeah. been very, very uh, critical because... Yeah. In the old days, you know, you had things which were in print and it took time to read and react and yeah. so on and so forth. These days, social media is so rapid that... Uh, I mean, it's a pro and a con when you, when you talk about social media. I think there's the requirement for greater transparency and it's brilliant that there are lots of documentaries like Blue Planet which are highlighting issues around sustainability and that then percolates into what we consume uh, and how we shop. But um, I would say that... There's, I think there's more of an emphasis on the consumer now, and I think there should be more of an emphasis. So, you know, part of the supply chain, I do get upset that the supply chain is always considered as a manufacturing issue or even a, a, a retailer issue. But actually, as consumers, we are all critically part of that supply chain. If we are last minute and require a purchase to be done within the hour, an online purchase to be delivered within the hour. We are part of that decision-making process of how that retailer or how that uh, uh, organization operates. And therefore the carbon footprint and the, uh, uh, so for example, you know, uh, the, the likes of Amazon have completely changed how consumers view shopping and how consumers demand shopping and that speed in which we're requiring things or the ability to return things you know, has percolated into the consumer psyche that actually it's actually creating 
far more waste than is necessary. So there's not a considered purchase. So I think now is the time where consumers really need to embrace themselves as being part of the supply chain, um, because the power is really with the consumer. We can say all that we want about retailers and their methodology of choosing suppliers, but the consumer at the end of the day is the one spending their pound and choosing which retailer to buy from. And it, it is ed it's education though, isn't it? Because um, the consumer wants to have a t-shirt for 99p and won't pay for more. But, but they will. Or the, no, no, they will. They absolutely will pay for more. No, if I, I agree. I think the problem is that, you know, consumers will not pay more if they're getting a t-shirt for 99 pence. You can say what you want, but what is very important is that the whole ethos of, you know, there are some consumers who would pay much more, some people will not pay. And unfortunately, the, the, the issues is, as you rightly say, education. And when you look at certain things, in fact, I was in, uh, in South India uh, on the foothills of, uh, of, um, uh, of uh, the Nilgiris. And I was walking with an American one early morning and he was looking at all these spices being grown right now when you look at the spices that we eat mm. and the price we pay is so pathetic when you look at the amount of work that is required to grow it to pick it by hand you know you have tea being picked by hand and in a whole day, they just pick a little bit of that tea. And that particular person who is picking that tea gets a small amount of money. And we are not willing to pay that price that really eventually should go to that poor person who's actually taken so much effort to do it. It's that true cost, isn't it? And I think that's where I was trying to get to with that 99p per t-shirt. I think you're right, Smriti. I think people will, will pay more for it but it's the education piece behind it. It's um, allowing people to understand what it is that has gone into that. So picking the tea um, for a whole day for that um, tiny amount. If people actually understood what was going on behind the scenes, I think people would definitely make better informed decisions. And particularly if you start to think about how long that particular t-shirt is. And when we know that the... Um, some of those fashion houses that we're talking about, I'm not going to name any names, but they have the 99p t-shirts that are washed once and fall apart because they're just not well made. And actually, if you look at the life cycle of one of those products, it's actually possibly more expensive than buying a £10, £15 t-shirt. Yeah. And you know what happened to that American when uh, when we finished that walk he said i would never never want to pay the prices that i'm paying sitting in new york for some spices some herbs and i feel so ashamed that we're paying so little and we don't mind walking down to one of these mcdonald's and paying far more just to get something fast food you know so really when when you look when when he actually saw what was uh, how much effort it takes to uh, grow spices. So many things that we, we take for granted being grown. It takes, you know, 
it takes a, a full cycle to grow something. And then the, the manual effort of picking it, then processing it, and then coming to the West uh, where we consume it is a big, big uh, task, which a fair price has not been paid. And I think seeing is believing, you know, and we were um, really lucky to be part of the Prince of Wales's uh, Business in the Community Initiative. And we won one of the awards for um, national excellence in, in supply chain. Um, but one of the key principles of the Prince's Trust is seeing is believing. And I think that more work really needs to be done on not um, scaring people into supply chain disasters. You know, you know, currently the only recognition of the British public of what a factory is like is, is, the, is the terrible factory disaster in Bangladesh. You know, there are some real success yeah. stories. And I think that more work needs to be done, firstly, on empowering the consumer to say, actually, you have a really important part to play in deciding how you consume, when you return something, what price you pay, and which retailer to buy from. And the only way to educate them is to have really positive documentaries that highlight wonderful business practices that are happening around the world. Um, because the more you scaremonger people and the more you sort of hit them over a head with a, you know, with a, with a, with a stick, the more they don't want to really look at it, you know? And I think that's what Bags of Ethics is. Bags of Ethics is a positive label that tries to celebrate the people and the planet along the entire supply chain, right from the consumer to the designers, to the retailers, to the stitching person, the, the packing person, the thread person, and, and, and personifying each and every role across the supply chain because it's like watching a cooking program. You know, suddenly you have this great appreciation of how to make a, you know, how to make a jus for a, for a Sunday roast. You know, you wouldn't ever think about it. But now that there's such, a, such an interest in cooking programs on TV, why can't there be an interest in, you know, manufacturing processes? Because we all have a part to play because we're all consumers. Mm. You know, the, the recent uh, masks that we, uh, we launched uh, with the British uh, Fashion Council, which was called the, the Great uh, uh, British uh, uh, Face Covering, uh, it was a designer project, and it was a success story, which which had this bags of ethics label. Uh, the reason I'm I'm bringing this up is because when we have a success story, it can be a win-win for everyone. Uh, we had this uh, project, which combined leading designers, uh, uh, British designers uh, like Julian McDonald or Mulberry uh, or, or uh, Liam Hodges or Rickso, uh, Christopher Rabin. Now, they were, during that pandemic time, you know, they were really in a situation where uh, the retail trade had dried up, fashion was in real crisis. They were able to participate in the project and benefit from it. We were able to donate a large amount of money to the British fashion council to a children's charity to the nhs COVID fund and at the same time produce something really wonderful made from a, a, a cotton sateen fabric which reduced plastic but plastic uh, single-use plastic as i was telling you you know the amount of single-use plastic that is going into the environment with these single-use face masks is is horrendous 
you know, we are talking of billions. Billions. Of masks. And UCL have just done a study. Well, actually, not just done a study, but University, University College London have released a study saying if every single person in the UK was to use disposable PPE, we'd create 128,000 tonnes I mean, of plastic. And, and, you know, these are really light items. So 128,000 tonnes is a hell of a lot. Yeah. yeah. So, so this, this is then getting into the, into the whole um, environment, the rivers, the oceans. And whilst we try to reduce plastic bags for the last 10, 12 years, this is, this is a monster of a disaster. Mm. And um, talking of uh, sustainability and um, the UCL study, um, what, have, what, what have you done as an organisation by looking at sustainability and environmental management as a whole? I mean, it spans across a variety of metrics. Um, right from the materials that we choose to use um, and the pledge that we make on the products that we make. So we, we try and uh, promote at least, so for the, for the masks, we say that they should be at least reused 50 times. And for our, all of our packaging, it should be at least 5,000 times. So reusability is an absolutely critical component of our environmental pledge. So that comes from the materials that we use, but also to the manufacturing standards you know you just referenced a t-shirt which might fall apart after one wash we wouldn't ever have something like that going through our quality control and you see the inks uh, see the the in terms of uh, when we make packaging um, and especially when you talk about t-shirts and other other products uh, there's a lot of uh, inks which are used which are not environmentally friendly uh, our products are not the cheapest but then we use inks which are uh, uh, compliant. We call it reach, reach compliant. We, we use uh, materials which are completely biodegradable. Most of our products like cotton or canvas or hessian, you know, degrades within a matter of days, not thousands of years. In terms of our manufacturing, all our machines are modern generation. So they consume very little electricity. And our, our factories are all very open. So there's very little electricity that we need during the day in terms of lighting. You know, it's all open, it's bright sunshine. So that's, that's the other area. Um, all, the, all the inks can be just washed into the, into the, uh, uh, into the gutters because it's completely harmless. Right? So we make sure that all these are, uh, are ticked off when we're discussing with the designers. Because the other thing that we have seen is if you give an option to the designer, right at the time of the concept of the design, even at this time when we were manufacturing the mask, we told the designers, look, please don't give us something which is so designy that we can't produce it the way we want to. So for example, you know, the, the brief was to reduce wastage in, in, within fashion. You'll have um, something called a placement print versus an all over print. And we made sure that the, 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 that the designs were created in a way that didn't create wastage in, in, in material. And even that, 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 tiny, that tiny request triggered the thought process with the designers. And so they designed something in mind that reduced the wastage in material consumption, which, which is a huge saving 
in terms of uh, material waste. And because, and forgive my ignorance, but because of cutting, the way that you C cut cutting. Them, yeah. Okay. Because of cutting. But yeah. you see, what uh, what what also happens is when you cut, um, it also depends as to how the print has been laid out. Uh, for example, if you have a print, suppose you have a a picture, you know, if, to, to give you an example, suppose we have a picture of your face, right? Now, if we cut half your face, it's not yeah. going to look good. But if it's a repetitive, uh, who you uh, talk to. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's a repetitive image uh, like this one that I can show you, it yeah. doesn't matter where we cut it. So really, uh, so the it's a simple thing. A design, you know, most of these these designers are really well uh, trained that they can design any design or modify any design to make sure that it's friendly for certain types of uh, manufacturing. So. What, what I'm trying to explain to you is that when you talk about sustainability, it it's, starts from the beginning, right from when you start the, when you do the sketches of the mm. drawing board. Mm. And as long as you have that as part of your, uh, your psyche, your, your ethos of a, a, as a company, it then becomes a lot easier. You know, you, you, you know if you know that you're building uh, a, a semi-detached house right from the beginning rather than you know a flat your designer would use everything in his power in his knowledge to build that but it should be part of your dna and that is i feel part of the sustainable aspect of businesses you know it can't be as i explained to you it can't be just a little tick that you do when the going is good. Mm -hmm. And when the going is bad, that tick disappears immediately because you say, look, you know, I don't want to know about it because I've got other urgent and important things to do of surviving as a business. Mm. Although the, we asked, I mean, I, I was around and running a business, helping organizations be sustainable back in 2008. And what you said resonated with me. And I can, I, I actually remember what you were talking about of people just going, actually, we're going to hold back on sustainability. But at this very moment in time with something similar going on with regards to organizations um, being holding their purse strings closer to them, I actually feel that it's happening less and sustainability is much higher on the agenda with the organizations we're working with. And we're I mean, we've just signed off Finisterre and doing a project with Finisterre, who you know are in the fashion industry. And they sustainability is core to their brand and um, core to what it is that they're doing. And I think there are more organisations like them that are um, going to the public, actually, this is who we are we are sustainable and um, you pay a tiny bit more, but you get a lot more from it. Well, I think, I mean, I think everyone wants to be sustainable. I think it's cool right now to be sustainable. It's like sexy to be sustainable. And it's, and there are occasions when, you know, brands are being branded as greenwashing because, you know, they've done a collection, which is made out of organic cotton and a bit of tencel and a bit of this and a bit of that. And then suddenly their entire business is considered sustainable um, 
So I think there's a balance to be had about, you know, actually encouraging businesses to be quite transparent, saying, look, sustainability is really difficult to define. And it depends on what metrics that you want to define yourselves on, whether it's only carbon or only compostable or only water-based or a combination of all, or whether it also incorporates the people. Because actually, you know, something that we've been battling against and, and, and getting quite miffed about at times is cotton has had actually quite a bad rap in the past couple of years because of, you know, a couple of documentaries and actually a deep dive into making snap judgments about a, a, a product, um, about a crop rather, is really important to do. So for example, you know, avocado is, is obviously a really trendy crop one year and then it's pomegranate the next year and then it's coconut water the, the, the following year. But the ramifications of it, something being trendy or not trendy, are dramatic for the people that are involved. You know, farmers are making decisions about what crop they're planting and how they're going to plant it and their irrigation systems and you know the number of teams that they need to employ on their farms and in an overnight overnight their entire industry can be you know turned upside down and you so for, with, the, with the case of cotton I think it's really important to understand that there are some cotton some cotton districts within the world which does require a lot of artificial irrigation and there are some districts in the world specifically the farmers that we work with where cotton is produced on naturally irrigated farms and well irrigated farms through you know the through rainwater and if you didn't have cotton growing there you'd have floodplains so it's really important to understand the pros and cons of each and every crop and obviously this is you know requires a lot more education a lot more of a deep dive which can be a bit boring um, but I think the more of an informed and well-balanced discussion that we can have around sustainability and, and, and not being so black and white, I think the better it is. And you know, what would you say, sorry, just to, um, what would you say your metrics are around sustainability, please? You see, as I said to you, our, our metrics goes back to the, to the basic DNA for, of our business. Uh, everything that we do, we look at it from a sustainable point of view. You know, for example, even hiring people mm. has to be sustainable because the first thing that uh, I believe is we don't hire mercenaries. You know, we don't pay exceptionally high amount of money. We pay them well, but then they all work for us for many, many years simply because we want them to be sustainable. You know, they, they, there is no point in having a business where I'm sustainable and my people are not sustainable in their DNA. Their core belief has to be sustainable. So waste of any kind, we don't, we don't want that. So everybody in the business has a core of being sustainable, of using sustainable product products, as I said, whether it's the inks, whether it's the electricity, whether it's the way we manufacture products to keep wastage to the minimum because at every level because i am sitting here in london but the manufacturing is taking place thousands of miles away it's these managers it's the various supervisors and the workers who have to have sustainability as part of their dna mm. so when we recruit we are very keen a as i said we uh, uh, encourage woman to come come and work for us but the other one is to also ensure that the dna of that person 
is quite uh, 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 related to our ideas. And we've always found that not paying someone over the top where they become mercenaries is, is a good way to go about it. If they love working for us, if they love the environment, they love the products that we do, that's quite important. Yeah, I think like your question is almost alluding to like a metric and a formula. And I think that's, you know, it's everything should be based on quantitative and qualitative. And I think the, the critical component of having a culture that's about a core principle, i.e. let's remove waste, is probably better than, okay, guys, we need to hit a 20% reduction in waste. Because you can actually just surpass that through a change in your philosophy. Yeah. So it's breeding innovation at the very basic level. Every single person in the company has the power to change a protocol if they feel it will be better. And, you know, we've experienced that even in the production of the masks. You know, it's been amazing. You know, we have the lowest, quote unquote, denominator within, within the factory. Actually, everyone is equal, but, in, you know, you have the packing lady who's packing saying, actually, I don't think we should be doing this this way. And maybe we should stitch it in a particular different way so that we can save on X or do this better. And that culture, I think, is probably a bit more powerful than just having a, a particular metric. Metrics are really important. Quantitative yeah. metrics are really, really important because, you know, it gives you a focus, it gives you a target. And we do have metrics and we do have targets. But I think what we would love for people, your listeners, to really take away is that culture is... Mm far more important and and it should come from the heart really it shouldn't it shouldn't be oh well it, you know i'm a sustainability officer and, and, and that's just me you know everyone's a sustainability officer in your business mm. yeah i totally agree i think you've hit the nail on the head i think it is that culture and it's embedding that culture within your organization is will drive your business through sustainability which incorporates every all aspects of the business is that i mean Finishing up here, um, what's the best way that we can connect with you and understand more about you guys? So you can uh, you can email us, or you can you can email. Well, I mean, our company's called Supreme Creations, um, and we have various different countries that we operate in. So, if your business audience is uh, global, we have we trade across Europe and America, and we obviously have a base in India. Um, Bags of Ethics is our social media platform. So find us on Instagram, on 